Welcome to this edition of Psychedelic Radio. I'm Christina Thomas, the president and founder of Myself Wellness, and my co-host is Charles Patty. Together, we co-founded The Warriors of Consciousness, a not-for-profit to help people gain access to psychedelic ketamine therapy. Together, we are on a mission to help save and transform lives, transform lives through this treatment. In this podcast, we'll be pushing boundaries, breaking taboos, and shedding light on the use of psychedelic medicines. We want to share expert knowledge and firsthand accounts of those who have experienced transformative psychic shifts using psychedelics. Journeying with us today is Albert Garcia Romeo, PhD, and is a member of the Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences faculty of John Hopkins University School of Medicine. He is also a guest researcher on the National Institute on Drug Abuse and Intramural Neuroimaging Research Branch. His research examines the effects of psychedelics in humans with a focus on psilocybin as an aid to treat, as a treatment of addiction. He has received his doctorate in psychology in 2012 from the Sophia University of Palo Alto, California, where he studied self-transcendence and meditation and their relationship to mental health. His current research interests include clinical application of psychedelics, mindfulness, and altered states of consciousness and their underlying neurobiological mechanisms, real-world drug use patterns, and the impact on public health, the role of spirituality and mental health and addiction, and the qualitative mixed methodologies toward investigating these areas. It's so great to have you, and it's so wonderful to see you again, Al. Thank you for yeah. joining us. Thank yeah, you great. so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's nice to see you again. I know we... Had a chance to talk a little bit in person at the Canadelic conference earlier this year in Miami, but it's nice to reconnect here and be able to chat some more. Yeah, definitely. Most definitely. For everybody listening, we actually met um, Al out in Miami and we listened to him speak at Canadelic. And boy, there were some fascinating things that were getting said about what's happening with these psychedelic compounds for substance abuse issues and addictive behaviors and, and a whole gambit of other things. And so this is a really an exciting time to, to be alive, to say the least. Oh, so, yeah, no, I would, I would agree 100%. I'll just say, you know, when I was growing up in Miami, when I was going to high school, I mean, that was um around you know the late 90s never would have thought i mean honestly that we would be where we're at now just uh, like 20 uh, or so years later where we're getting some real uh, momentum towards mainstream you know acceptance of psychedelics as medical treatment so it's it's pretty exciting you're right beautiful so i guess you know I, I i got to hear some amazing things in miami but i guess i would love to just touch on some of the research that you're doing and, and what you guys are finding at the university yeah, you know, so I've been working here at Johns Hopkins for about 10 years and we've been, you know, working uh, with psilocybin primarily in that time. Uh, and it's, yeah, I mean, the field has grown, you know, by leaps and bounds in that time. Um, I, the kind of job offer that I got, I was a postdoctoral fellow when I finished um, my PhD was pretty much to come on and work with Matt Johnson and Roland Griffiths and Mary Cosimano and all of the team here. Um, and specifically, Matt Johnson had uh, come up with this uh, small pilot study, as we call it. These are kind of like these very early stage studies where we just kind of want to see if, uh, you know, this makes sense to study in more depth. And so you just start off with a really small, you know, scale type of study. And that one was for cigarette smokers who want to quit. 
I mean, I think we all know cigarette smoking obviously is not good for your health, but you know, I think oftentimes the public health impact is just not really, um, you know, in terms of its the scale of that is not really well understood by a lot of, of folks. Um, specifically, you know, we talk about the opioid epidemic. I mean, we're actually currently at what is the highest level of opioid overdose deaths in the U.S. on you know in history, um, but we're still that's still under a hundred thousand deaths per year. Um, whereas with cigarette smoking, we have about 500,000 deaths per year um, related to tobacco. And so it's a really big problem, obviously. It's also extremely hard to stop smoking. Um, we have a few treatments that work like nicotine patches and um, you know, some medicines that help some people. Um, but you know, that initial pilot study that we did with cigarette smokers, you know, we found a lot of uh, success with uh, two or three high doses of psilocybin, combine it with cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and, you know, found that, uh, you know, majority of those people quit and then they stayed quit uh, for the long term, um, which is really exciting. And that kind of led into basically what I've been doing here ever since, you know, we've um, developed a much larger study. We're actually just finishing a big study in 82 people um, where we um, either randomly gave them psilocybin or nicotine patches. And then we are going to compare, you know, who quit smoking uh, between the groups to see which treatment seems to work better. And so far, you know, we uh, it seems like the psilocybin continues to work, you know, at a higher rate than even this accepted FDA-approved treatment with nicotine patches. So, um, you know, that's been, you know, something that I've been focusing on uh, for for a while now, specifically working with Matt Johnson on that project. I, I love, <clears throat> pardon me, I love it. And, you know, I'm, this actually really hits home for me because, First of all, my father actually passed away from lung cancer when I was really young. And so he died from smoking cigarettes. And then I actually, unfortunately, and I don't know why, but it just happened. I started smoking cigarettes at a very young age. I actually started smoking cigarettes around 11 years old. Yeah. And, and I quit smoking cigarettes through psychedelic use. It was wow. through. It was through different psychedelic compounds, psilocybin being one of them that mm. I actually quit smoking cigarettes. And I think one of the real, you know, not only did it, it, it took the urges away from me as much, but one thing I always tell people is, is that psychedelic medicines gave me the ability to actually love myself enough to actually want to start living a healthier lifestyle. I couldn't stand myself for a long time. And it was through that, that, you know, I, I really, I quit smoking. I started eating healthier. I started exercising and really taking, you know, those steps forward in my life to live a healthier, more fulfilled, more fulfilling life. Yeah, no. And that's what, that's what your research really entails too, is not only right. The use of psychedelics, but the use of these mindfulness practices as well. And, and I, and I love that when I like, I love what you're doing. I really do. I have so much respect for you. Thank you so much for your service to humanity. And also to like, you know, talk about all of the other things that are the recipe for long-term success with these healing modalities. Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, just congratulations on quitting because it's, you know, a great thing for you to be able to do for your health. But, you know, I 100% agree with some, with what you're saying there, which is, it wasn't just about stopping smoking. It wasn't just about reducing the craving to do it. Um, but there's often, you know, this whole other layer beneath that, which, you know, we're using these substances and it doesn't even have to be drugs or substances. You know, it can be sex. It can be shopping. It can be also work. You know, people can really find a, a lot of different ways to kind of 
get away from themselves or to avoid uh, underlying issues that they don't want to look at. And I think ultimately a lot of it comes back to what you said, which is, you know, taking a long, hard look at yourself and saying, hey, you know, this person is a good person. They're a person that's worthy of, of love and being loved. And I'm going to give that, give myself that. And when you start to give yourself that, then that also comes along with a, a lot of other benefits like, hey, I'm not going to engage in these self-destructive behaviors anymore. Um, I'm going to find other ways to engage that are healthier and you know better for my, my well-being long term. No, I love it. I love it. You know, a, a question that I really have for you that I'm, I'm interested in, and I heard you touch on it when you spoke, but, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, back and forth about what's more effective when treating these kind oh, of things. Still my question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. But like, what's more effective when it comes to treating these things? You hear about microdosing and you hear about more like therapeutic doses and macro doses. And has the research that you guys have done really point in a direction of, what what is we're getting better results long term for helping people with yeah no that's you know a, a important question that we get asked a lot and you know i have to say unfortunately we're still kind of in the in our nascent you know kind of very young stage of psychedelic medicine research to um, you know we are too early i would say to be able to give uh, people a good answer and people ask me all the time because say you know my son has a problem with opioids or you know, my um, friend is really struggling with alcohol. Is there a specific psychedelic treatment that would be better for them, ketamine or psilocybin or LSD or ayahuasca? And, you know, we really can't say. I mean, we can say with some, you know, and actually Dr. Michael Bogenshoes just published his study, I think last week, looking at psilocybin-assisted treatment for alcohol use disorder and showing that the psilocybin treatment you know, people were getting um, more benefit than the placebo group. So that's really, you know, a positive uh, finding. But, you know, has that been tested head to head versus something like LSD or ayahuasca or mescaline or some other type of treatment? No, not really. I mean, we ha we can't come back and look at numbers and say, oh, yeah, we know that this drug uh, would be a better treatment for this type of addiction or condition. I mean, so we're, I think, in the early days where we have a lot more interesting things to study and look at all these other chemicals and also other types of uh, talk therapies or, you know, behavioral therapies that we can incorporate to figure out which works best. And ultimately, I think there will be some sort of ability to say, you know, we know this person has a history of, you know, this type of problem or this type of mental health condition. And based on that, you know, we think this type of drug and this type of a behavioral therapy will be best for them. But yeah, today, I mean, it's really a lot of guesswork. And, you know, part of that has just been, we haven't been able to do enough research. Um, you know, even drugs like LSD, which were studied a lot in the 1960s, um, have not been studied, you know, in the United States recently because of all the stigma and also the regulatory hurdles, man, to get, to be able to get your hands on legitimate, you know, LSD that the FDA has approved for you to give to humans is really challenging and, and it's expensive and it takes a long time. So I think maybe in 10 years we'll know more. Um, but, I, you know, for now, we can definitely say one thing, you know, going back to your earlier question, Charles, which is um, most of the treatments that we've seen work, particularly in treating, um, you know, substance use disorders, but also for treating major depression, for instance, 
um, you know, those have been using high doses. So, yeah. you know, people talk a lot about microdosing, um, but there haven't been good definitive placebo controlled studies that have shown that when you're using microdoses of any of these psychedelics that they're creating any long-term benefit. Um, however, we can say pretty, you know, uh, definitively now that with something like high dose psilocybin, you're getting, you know, in a placebo controlled trial, double blind, you're getting people who are improving better from their alcohol use disorder with the high dose psilocybin. Um, and same with our smokers that we haven't published those data yet. Um, and, you know, in studies looking at psilocybin for depression, all of those have used high doses and not a lot of high doses, usually one or two, um, you know, seems to be good enough, um, you know, to help a lot of people have benefit. Amazing. So from, so today is, it's actually very synchronistic that we are talking to you today. Today is actually International Overdose Awareness Day. Hmm. Um, and so I want to talk to you a little bit because I mean, I, this, especially in in our lives has hit really close to home lately. I mean, there's just so many people every day. I feel like we're hearing somebody that Mm -hmm. Charles knows, um, has unfortunately overdosed and there's this huge fentanyl epidemic going on around us. Um, and so what is your research showing for clinically showing for addiction, especially opioid addiction and the use of psychedelics. Yeah. You know, unfortunately we have found ourselves in a kind of a dark time, uh, both, you know, with that surging opioid epidemic with, you know, fentanyl just kind of really uh, being prevalent all over the U S now in, you know, the different um, opioid markets. And as a result, yeah, there's, there's a lot of huge health problems. You know, I think a lot of people are, are, turning to opioids just because things are so difficult, you know, both between the pandemic, um, there's a lot of uncertainty there. And, you know, we've got a lot of other issues, you know, economic hardships and, and, you know, mental health crises just in general going on. And, you know, one of the, the kind of sad things is that we've not had a lot of new breakthroughs in terms of finding ways to treat things like um, opioid dependence, you know, medications like buprenorphine, um, you know, can be helpful for some, but they're not always accessible. Uh, and, you know, even for some people that they are accessible to, they may not want to go that route um, because they're not, you know, interested in, in getting on a, um, opioid agonist therapy. And so, you know, I think it's really important that there be more research looking at these psychedelic treatments, um, specifically for um, opioid use disorder, which, you know, there was a great early study published in 1973 that was done here in Baltimore, um, where uh, 74 men who had a history of heroin dependence in the Baltimore area, but yeah, this is another place where there's a lot of uh, opioid use, unfortunately. Um, And half of them got a high-dose LSD treatment, half of them got uh, basically released into the community, um, and, you know, they went on their way. And the people who got the LSD treatment um, over the, the year after that, you know, were the ones who continued to maintain higher levels of abstinence from opioids. And so that was one of the kind of early studies that was published looking at using psychedelics for specifically treating opioid dependence. Um, since then, it really hasn't been well studied, meaning nobody's done like a clinical trial where, um, you know, you're giving somebody a psilocybin or LSD or ayahuasca, for instance, to deal with their opioid dependence. Um, but that type of research is being planned and going to be taking place here at Hopkins and probably other labs too around the country. But I know certainly one of my colleagues, Dr. Sandeep Nayak, is 
working on a study that will start either later this year or early next year, where we'll be using psilocybin-assisted treatment for people and uh, trying to get um, into recovery from opioids. And so I think that'll give us some more data in terms of how useful this could be. But there's been a lot of talk about this even just recently in the last few years. A couple of papers have been published where they take these sort of big national data sets and they take um, these um, national survey on drug use and health data where they get you know tens of thousands of people to fill these um, surveys out and they talk about what their drug use has been like and their mental health has been like in the last year. And you know what's been interesting is that there's been associations found between people who use psychedelics, um, you know, having a lower likelihood of becoming dependent on opioids. And so what that kind of suggests is that there is potentially a protective benefit of these psychedelics and the experiences that people have with them that would kind of steer you away from using or abusing opioids, which I think is, you know, again, another good signal that this could be a, a really promising direction for treatment there. No, I, you know, I love it. And, and like, just to remind everybody, you know, like I, I was addicted to heroin. I was addicted to cocaine. I was an alcoholic. I, you know, I smoked cigarettes. I was addicted to Xanax, food, scratch off tickets, women, you name it. I was addicted to it. Anything to take myself out of the misery that I was living in every day. And it was as a direct result of these kind of, you know, out, out of psychedelic medicines that I alleviated all of that out of my life. So like, I'm a huge fan of your work. I've been talking about this stuff for years now. And I remember when I first had these profound experiences that propelled me to start changing my life, I was telling everybody like, you know, hey, listen, I took six grams of mushrooms and I meditated on it in pitch black. And I went out into the universe and realized that, you know, I was a part of consciousness that we're all connected and that, you know, basically we're all it. And when I came back down from that experience, I realized, you know, it's like as being an extension of the divine, I really needed to treat myself accordingly and start to take all of those things out of the equation. And without these compounds, I would have never accomplished that. But trying to tell people about that, they're like, he's crazy. <laughs> it's like, wait a second, you're taking drugs to get off of drugs. And it's like, yeah, but these are different kinds of drugs. This is, this is completely, different. completely different. Well, you know, Rogan, Joe Rogan talks about it. It's like, you know, you got compounds like, like opiates or, or are like, you know, heroin or cocaine or whatever. And like these drugs really aren't good for you. They're not benefiting you, but you know, then you have compounds like psychedelic medicines, which are tapping people in the higher states of consciousness and actually doing, you know, physiological healing to the neural pathways and all of this other amazing stuff. So, you know, drugs is a big broad label to just slap on all these different compounds. Yeah. And there's been a big sea change, you know, in terms of like even the last 10, 20 years, where I think at some point, you know, people thought it was crazy to think about this as a potential treatment option. And nowadays, even the U.S. government is funding research to say, OK, let's look seriously at psychedelics as therapeutics. Um, so so, you know, times are changing, but I agree, you know, there's a lot of misgivings that people have. And sometimes there's a lot of um, misinformation that they've been fed about these drugs as being, you know, these sort of really dangerous, risky things, which they, you know, like all substances, they can be abused or, you know, they can have some risks uh, involved. However, they're really not this type of, you know, drug that makes you go crazy, which I think is the sort of, uh, you know, common myth out there for a lot of people. Yeah, it was a picture that was painted. Yeah. Um, with with your work um, at the National Institute for Drug Abuse and Intramural Neuroimaging, 
did you have you um, ever hooked anybody up to a monitor to see their brain activity during the use of psychedelics? So actually, um, we have been looking specifically at our cigarette smokers before and after they quit. And so this for uh, half of that group would include directly after or the day after they have a high dose psilocybin session. Um, and really what we're looking at is sort of changes over time in the brain and the way that the brain is communicating. Um, and so we haven't finished that study yet and we haven't published those data. Uh, but yeah, we're not looking at people when they're in, you know, uh, when they're under the influence specifically, we're actually looking at if there's changes before and after the drug is administered. And if those changes have something to do with, uh, for instance, re recovery from addiction. Um, then that said, there have been um, a number of really good studies published where they're specifically looking at, you know, what are people, uh, what are people's brains doing when they are under the influence? And they're, you know, I'm not a brain scientist, so I'm not uh, an expert to be able to give you like sort of the breakdown on that. But, you know, the basics are, you know, there are a sort of hub regions or areas or what we call networks, I guess, in the brain. And that those networks um, are usually running in certain patterns. You can almost think of it like traffic patterns in the city. You know, certain times, certain roads are going to be really busy. Other times those roads will be empty. Um, and... Uh, what happens is the patterns, the traffic patterns in your brain in terms of information uh, flow are changing when people are under the influence. And all of a sudden, these roads that usually nobody's going on are, are packed with new uh, information moving to and from different areas of the brain. And so when that's happening, people are also having, you know, these subjective drug effects, which is, you know, this feeling of ego dissolution or, you know, these other perceptual changes or changes in thinking and emotion. Um, so it really just sort of opens up a whole new um, level of brain dynamics that's not present when you're, um, you know, basically on a placebo or when you're sober. And so that's, you know, something that we're investigating as a potential mechanism for, for instance, for getting people out of these sort of uh, repetitive loops that we can get stuck in. And that includes things like addictions, but also things like depression, where basically your brain is kind of constantly, you know, staying with this negative thought patterns, thinking badly about ourselves, thinking badly about the world, um, or perseverating on, you know, negative emotions. Um, and so there's something about that very dynamic brain state that the drugs can induce that seems to help us kind of snap out of those, those stuck patterns that we get locked into. Yeah, yeah, super interesting. For sure. You know, just to, just to, to let you know, like here at Myself Wellness, We've been having phenomenal results of people, with people that are suffering with substance abuse issues. We had a 20-year-old guy who had actually overdosed off fentanyl and, you know, died momentarily, and then he was revived. And four days later, he was doing psychedelic ketamine therapy here at the facility. And since he's gone through his treatments, he quit using drugs. He got a gym membership. He's re-enrolled back in college. Um, I have a friend of mine who I actually, before I got sober, used to hang out with, and I noticed he was still struggling about a year and a half ago. So I reached out to him. He, he was a guy like me who couldn't put more than six months of sobriety together. And he went through the treatments and, you know, and, and he was an, an IV drug user. And after he went through the treatments, he was just like, I've gone to rehab like a dozen times. And he's like, that first treatment was more than I got through going to a 28 day stay. And he's been sober for over 16 months now. Um, wow. And even just for the people that 
I've been, you know, in like I was in recovery in 12 step meetings for a lot of years. And I have a lot of friends that have long term sobriety under their belts. And they're actually coming in and doing psychedelic therapy. And they're like, I'm work, I'm working my the program, I'm living by spiritual guidelines, and I'm still so depressed. And then they go through the treatments. And they're like, this is the first time in a decade, I've really been happy, really not been white knuckling it through my days. It's like I was staying sober, but my quality of life wasn't there. And this actually gave me the quality of life back. So I don't even think that this is just going to be beneficial for people that are going through the active addictions and things to that effect people that have been in recovery for a number of years, this is going to benefit a lot. I know Bill Wilson, who is the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, actually used LSD 20 years into his own recovery to work on his own depression and actually had a spiritual experience off of belladonna extract, I believe, when he was in detox, where he saw visions of the future in a society of alcoholics helping each other stay sober. So, you know, just for everybody out there to know, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous was actually into psych psychedelic medicines <laughs> that that's absolutely right you know that's a great point charles and um there's a really good book called distilled spirits that talks about like the history of bill wilson and um gerald hurd and aldous huxley and these guys who are you know early 20th century thinkers who were very influential who also were using psychedelics back in those days and and you're right you know um the white light experience that uh, bill wilson you know talked about and attributed his long-term sobriety to um, was something that was, um, you know, done by a, a, a belladonna extract, a, a psychedelic type of a treatment using this delirium um, flower that works on, on the cholinergic system, but basically a hallucinogen. And, you know, later he did do LSD and he actually wanted to kind of bring that into the AA 12 step model because he thought it was such a powerful way to have a spiritual awakening, though, you know, there's a very strong sort of uh, bent in the, um, 12 step programs towards, you know, abstinent only models, which, you know, eventually that kept uh, Bill Wilson from talking about LSD within the AA programs uh, specifically. But, you know, coming back to something else you were talking about, you know, we've been talking about uh, uh, psilocybin and a little bit about LSD and these classic psychedelics as we call them. But, um, you know, there's been really good work. Um, and first, you know, in Russia, there's this fellow, um, Dr. Eugenie Krupitsky, who is using ketamine assisted treatment, you know, years ago, this was back when, you know, when I was a kid, but he was doing this research early on, um, really showing benefits using ketamine assisted treatment for treating alcoholism. Uh, and then also for people with opioid dependence. And, you know, that work was, was kind of, it fell off and, and nobody really revisited that until recently. But, now, all of a sudden, you've seen some really good papers in the last couple of years where scientists in New York, uh, Elias Dockwar, uh, published great findings using ketamine-assisted treatment for alcohol use disorder and even for cocaine use disorder, which is something that we do not have any sort of medical treatments that seem to work for. Um, and he's got great results using mindfulness, you know, um, in com combination with ketamine. And it's not just, you know, uh, Elias in New York, but there's another great paper published earlier this year. Celia Morgan, who's in the UK overseas, uh, had another great paper looking at ketamine for alcohol use disorder, showing good results. Um, and so, yeah, I think that there's a ton of uh, potential there. And I'm glad that, you know, people like y'all are able to, you know, have this uh, available for people who are either in recovery 
like you said, early on or later on, or people, you know, dealing with other issues like depression, because, you know, clearly there's been a, a strong signal for antidepressant effects with ketamine treatment as well. You know, one thing that we're doing here, the, 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 my friend that, you know, put the 16 months together, we actually just last night, he went and looked at the space at a local church here and bi-weekly in the upcoming, like in two weeks, we're going to start it. We're actually putting together basically a spinoff of a 12-step group that is completely okay and open to talk about psychedelics and 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 I think that that's going to be huge because, you know, what Christina was talking about is my best friend actually died about a week and a half ago. And uh, I, he died of, you know, going through things like that we were talking about. And, and the truth is, is that I was trying to get him in for treatments, but we didn't get him in time fast enough. And, you know, and like people don't have to die at these rates anymore. You know, I like all of these other psychedelic compounds that are going through, I can't wait for them to do it, but we have an FDA approved medication right now, which is ketamine, which is doing amazing things for people in this area and helping people put together long-term sobriety because we're getting to the root issue and the root cause of why people are self-medicating to begin with. You know, like whatever the substance or whatever you're you're, you're self-medicating with, that's really just a symptom of the underlying issue, which is at hand, whether it be depression, anxiety, which all pretty much stems from trauma to begin with. So, you know, I'm not even just a believer of that these medicines are going to transform the way that people are staying sober, but I'm actually a pretty big believer that it's actually going to transform the, the, the direction that humanity is headed in. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's really tough, man. I'm sorry to hear about your friend. Because like you said, with those situations, there are always this feeling of, gosh, could we have done more? I wish we could have acted sooner. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're right. You know, I think the fact is oh, there's a lot of people beating on our door to try to get into these um, psilocybin clinical trials. There's only a handful of them, you know, where there's only so much room in these studies. And so um, it's unfortunate because we have to turn a lot of people away. But it's, it's really important to note that, you know, there are functioning and operational and completely legitimate ketamine clinics out there where people can go to get medically supervised ketamine treatment that I think will operate as a way to help get a lot of folks, you know, um, on the path of recovery, whether dealing with addictions or, like I said, mood issues, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I think the work that that's happening now with ketamine is really important part of this because also sort of building a, a initial platform where soon you're going to see not just ketamine treatments, but then also MDMA treatments and also psilocybin treatments. And so having those types of clinics that are already out there and they're able to do this type of work and they're, and they have people trained to do that, you know, because, you know, let's face it, this is a very different model of medicine because it uh, also includes having a profound altered state of consciousness, which you're not normally doing, um, you know, in a regular medical treatment. And so that requires a whole different, you know, setup and, you know, clinical infrastructure and training. And so I think it's really good that that is kind of getting out there already and that, that it's, you know, something that people have access to now. Yeah. And that was one of our big proponents too, um, is that, you know, ketamine therapy isn't, isn't the cheapest therapy out there. It's not really covered by insurance. So that was one of our biggest proponents for setting up the warriors of consciousness because Charles does our sales and, um, you know, he was tired of turning people down because they just couldn't afford the treatment. And so we're just really out here trying to make a better way for people 
to get help and access. Yeah, you know, it's like you know when I when we're we're all connected. I mean, I know it's hard to believe for a lot of people, but at the end of the day, there really is this oneness with one consciousness. And you know, the guy who's holding up a sign on the side of the street looking for his next meal, if he needs ketamine therapy and is open to doing that and, and wanting to change his life, he needs access to this medicine just as much as the soccer mom that can afford the you know the three thousand dollar treatments. Yeah, and you know, and. That being said, I have a question that's to follow all this up with. Any foresight into the future with psilocybin and when you might think that it could possibly end up going through FDA approval? Yeah. So right now, I would say MDMA is sort of getting to, to you know that stage of FDA approval. Probably in the next one to two years, you'll be getting to that place of seeing it get FDA approval and then um, go out into the world in terms of being available in clinics. I think psilocybin is just a little bit behind, so maybe two to three years. Um, and mainly, you know, a lot of that is just a function of being able to finish a lot of the research that needs to happen to get that FDA approval. And those are big studies, usually a, a couple hundred people. They take a long time because you're not only giving people the drug, but, you know, you're following up with them six months, 12 months later to see how they're doing. So it takes a long time, you know, it's a big operation, it's expensive, um, but it, all of that work is underway now. Amazing. And so, you know, if all of the data that come back from these studies continue to look the way that they have been in terms of the studies that we know that we have available now, um, you know, my guess is you, we will see a sort of legal psilocybin treatment, not just in Oregon or, you know, one specific area, but um, something that's available throughout the 50 states, you know, in the United States, and then probably in lots of other parts of the world as well, hopefully. Um, you know, one point that you mentioned that I think is really important is that, yeah, you know, we have a for-profit healthcare system that doesn't work great. And so it also means that if you can't afford a medicine that's going to be life-saving for you, too bad. And if your insurance doesn't cover it or if you don't have insurance, too bad, which is, is I think, a bit of a problem. Um, but we need to figure out ways, you know, to make this stuff accessible to people um, and, you know, regardless of where their income, you know, looks like or, um, you know, what their insurance status is, because I agree with you that, you know, this can really um, be an important way for a lot of people to sort of move in the direction of better health and wellness. For sure, man. Yeah. For sure. I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, journey with us on this podcast today. It's been so insightful and and a breath of differentness. <laughs> I loved it. Thank you so much again for the work that you're doing, your service to humanity. I loved having this uh, conversation with you and, and I'd love to have you back on in the future. Yeah, definitely keep in touch. I will be in touch when I come down to Florida as well. But yeah, it's, it's really great chatting with you all, hearing about, you know, your story, but also just, you know, hearing about the work that you're doing, because I'm excited about what this is going to look like, you know, over the next few years. For sure. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us with us today on this edition of Psychedelic Radio. You can download our past episodes of our program by going to CannabisRadio.com or by subscribing to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. To learn more about the Warriors of Consciousness, please follow us on social media or go to WOCFund.org and watch the videos. And if nobody's told you that they love you lately, we, we do. do.
The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.